I'm Ben Horton. I'm Magnus Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Well, the weather is grey, it's it, awful, it's not remotely pathetic fallacy. <laughs> yes, it's it a cheery morning. political outlook, but it is a bit wet and misly here in London, but we are back with you nonetheless with some very hot coffee <laughs> and some excellent insights, as Definitely. ever. Yeah, I mean, well, we're recording this on Wednesday. Now that I know it's we Wednesday. are, even though Agnes tried to say it was Tuesday. <laughs> She hadn't fooling anyone. It's been a long this, week. Like, to be honest, the midterms have gone on long enough. I'm not having a Groundhog Day on results day. <laughs> yes. So we don't know the full results yet. Well, we, we will do by the time you are listening to this. Indeed. But currently we don't. But we had a good interview this morning, didn't we? Who did we speak to? We did. We spoke to Anthony Gardner, who from 2014 to 2017 was the US ambassador to the European Union under the Obama administration. And he had some very interesting things to say about transatlantic relations, mm-hmm. the About, importance of the special relationship. Yeah, the future of the European Union and their interactions with the US too. Indeed. Um, and what the results so far from the midterms might, well, what impact they might have on those relations going forward. And we should say at this stage in our recording, it looks as though the Democrats have won back the House of Representatives, yeah. but they've not made the gains that they wanted in the Senate. The Republicans have held the Senate and uh, several of the key governor races have also gone to Republican candidates. So yeah. it's a kind of mixed bag, seems to be the initial... Initial I response, don't know. I think. It's that kind of thing where, like, if you're a public speaker, which is a great subject for radio, obviously. <laughs> like, yeah. But if you're a public speaker, at this point, the hand gesture would probably be that kind of balancey hand gesture. Yeah, on the one hand, on the, one on hand, the other. On the other hand, comsi comsa, so-so, yeah. meh. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. Although turnout seems to have been very high. The turnout was high, indeed, and by US standards. By US standards. And uh, arguably, I think these midterms have had so much attention from abroad. I mean, normally, we're not talking about the US midterms. Yeah, I think actually, to be honest, it's the first time I've ever thought about the US midterms. I mean, but when... I, I am mean, younger than you. I was going to say, how old were you when there were last midterms? Eight? No, I was uh, still at university, though. Oh, my God. There we go. Um, A long-running theme of this intro is how young Ben is. Yeah, but and that's interesting. And also, I think the fact that um, one of our colleagues pointed out uh, last week that the economy is doing really well in the States and mm-hmm. neither side have, you know, used the economy at all in their campaigning. It has been about identity. Mm. Yeah, it's been yeah. about what what does this uh, administration represent mm-hmm. for both sides. So interesting. But we also had another interview. We did with the indomitable Chris Van Dome. Yes, in- yes, Chris Van Dome, who uh, is a colleague of ours. He works in the Africa program at Chatham House, and he came on to talk about uh, illegal wildlife trade. Yep, and new ways of combating it uh, that are being trialled in, in Southern Africa. Yeah, and obviously we, we had an interview fairly recently on a similar topic. Yeah, from Christoph Titeka, um on the ivory trade specifically and specifically in Uganda, whereas this report that Chris and the head of the Africa programme, Alex Vines, have co-authored looks more broadly at the region as a whole and overarching strategies Yeah, to combat yeah the poaching and, and sale of 
ivory and yeah. wild animals that is kind of rife. And the difficulties of uh, trying to implement policy across lots of different states. Yeah. Um, and also, we just love elephants, don't yeah. we? And pangolins. There's a bit in here where Chris mentions pangolins. I've not been able to edit it out because Agnes's <laughs> contribution to that was... We've got to talk about pangolins. <laughs> I love pangolins. <laughs> They're so great. I've never, ever thought about pangolins. You know, the, the nearest pangolin to us right. is in Germany. Right. Have you um, visited it? No, I haven't. And uh, uh, I know this uh, from intel from the Foreign Office. Um, and you can't move a pangolin. They get really distressed and sometimes they die. So pangolins have to stay where they are. Right. Yeah. So right. like, you can't ship a pangolin over like to London. Sunday afternoon. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's have a listen. So, Ben and I are here with Anthony Gardner, who is Senior Counsel at Sydney Austin LLP and Senior Advisor at Brunswick Group and was the US Ambassador to the European Union between 2014 and 2017. Thank you so much for joining us today. Very good to be here. We're speaking on Wednesday morning and we haven't got full results of everything yet. So we're going to slightly ignore the midterms for the moment, if that's okay. I wanted to ask you, what is your take on the special relationship, the UK-US? Do you think it is special or do you think that's a UK view on it? And actually most nations think that they have a special relationship with the US. It definitely is special. You know, I witnessed and lived this almost every day when I was ambassador to the EU, 2014-2017. So to be concrete, um, you know, my closest colleague was really the UK ambassador to the EU, Ivan Rogers. And on almost all of the issues I can think of, but particularly the biggest ones that occupied us, such as sanctions on Russia after the invasion of Crimea, on trade competition, free markets, law enforcement. What was the country or which country was the most important one for the United States then, as it is now? It is the UK because our philosophical alignment, if you will, is so great. Having said that, you know, we spoke out or the president spoke out and others spoke out um, in the prior administration about Brexit because of this precise issue. Because we felt the UK uh, was and is special, but partly because of its being a member of a bigger club in which it could help propagate, help expand, support our common views. And once it's not a member, obviously that can't uh, happen uh, any longer. But having said that, even after Brexit, of course the UK will remain a special partner, however, with less influence. Just on, on that, particularly on the Brexit stance, do you think in hindsight it was helpful for President Obama to make such a public statement in favour of one side within what was sort of essentially a domestic vote? Some of the language he used I regret and certainly would not have uh, suggested that he use the back of the queue being one mm. of them. Uh, but I think it was the right decision. It was of fundamental importance for the United States. Of course, it was a difficult thing to talk about because it is a sovereign decision of uh, a people, the UK people, to make in a democratic process. 
And so there's a fine line between uh, speaking up for about, about an issue that impacts U.S. interests on the one hand and the other hand not interfering in the interests of another. But yes, I think it was the right thing to do because as I mentioned, you know, we had a lot of quote-unquote equity uh, at stake in that decision. And I think it was absolutely justified for us to say here's how we think the decision to leave will impact U.S. interests and European interests. Mm-hmm. The third issue about how it will impact UK's position in the world was probably not a place we should have commented on. Interesting, yeah. And speaking of being at the back of the queue, a lot of politicians in the UK are talking about our great potential trade deals with the US. What do you think the likelihood of that is, realistically? It depends on what happens. I would love to see a US-UK trade deal, but it's not imminent and it's probably not going to be as big and it's probably not going to be as bold and beautiful as some people have been predicting for over a year now. Remember, even in the weeks following the US election, many people were saying that was going to be imminent and easy deal to negotiate. That was absolute nonsense, I have to say, for many reasons. First of all, because it was not possible for the United States to either negotiate a deal while the UK was a member of the EU, and secondly, there was no real serious discussion about a deal that occurred before it was clear what the UK's future relationship with the EU was going to be, and that even to this day remains unclear. It may become clear in the days or weeks to come. But even once it's made clear, a deal of that kind is not going to be easy to negotiate. No free trade agreement is easy to negotiate. Look, even our deal, U.S. deal with Australia, uh, wasn't quick and easy. It took, I think, uh, it's probably the quickest one, probably 12 months, but typically it take years to do. There are going to be some significant issues on the table in that kind of a U.S.-U.K. free trade deal. And remember in TTIP, the deal that we tried to negotiate between the US and the EU, there were many issues of the, that were controversial in the UK. Those will come up again from agriculture to government procurement uh, to, uh, to many other issues besides. So it won't be quick uh, and it won't be bold. It won't be beautiful in the way that many of the promoters believe. And, and by the way, one should be very clear about this. In the area of free trade, countries tend to be pretty unsentimental. It's about power and it's about leverage. The UK negotiating alone is not going to have anywhere near the leverage that it has as a member of the EU. Negotiating is 28. Uh, And this is a president who is pretty unsentimental about using leverage and power to get what he wants. Just, uh, yeah, following on that trade thread, obviously with Brexit, trade and single markets and customs unions and everything, that's that's kind of all we're talking about in the media in the UK um, at the moment. But... Thinking about sort of free trade agreements and things from a domestic U.S. point of view, does it have the same resonance with kind of the public in America that it does with public discourse here in the U.K.? No, uh, it doesn't. And is rarely a foreign policy issue of of salience, um, certainly in elections. When it does, it's usually on the negative side, sort sort of risks rather than opportunities. But interestingly... 
interestingly, uh, a few things came up in the in the exit polls of um, this the midterms that we that just occurred yesterday, and one of them that struck me is that a third said that uh, trade policies that this president has been undertaking have hurt them. Mm. Uh, a quarter said they were helpful. A third said no impact. But 30% said the trade policies have hurt them. So trade could emerge actually as an issue in the 2020 elections. It's going to be a very difficult issue to talk about. But to answer the question, I think it's certainly had less salience in the United States than in Europe. I think partly because the U.S. domestic market obviously is so much larger in terms right. of percentage of uh, GDP, you know, uh, the United States is less reliant on trade than a UK or most other countries like Germany. I wanted to ask you about engaging with the EU because Trump seems to be much more confident coming from a business background of engaging with individuals and leaders rather than institutions and bodies. When you were uh, ambassador to the EU. Were you talking to individuals? Were you focused on, and also was the administration focused on the big leaders, Merkel or Macron, or were they talking to the body? Both. You know, that was the beauty of the job, is that it was multidimensional chess, that the EU institutions played an important role, depending on the issue, but the area where it has, quote-unquote, in EU jargon, competence, power on trade, being the obvious one, uh, competition policy, you uh, or in sanctions, importantly. I spent a lot of time talking to the EU institutions, the Commission, the Council, and the Parliament, particularly on issues of trade and data privacy, which were hugely significant in the aftermath of the Snowden revelations. But what made the job beautiful is that to get uh, what we wanted done, we also had to speak to the key national players, Germany being the most obvious example, but others as well. We had to build coalitions. And even further to your point, now that the UK is likely to be leaving, uh, it will make that even more important, the building of coalitions with member states. Because uh, to be honest with you, the US got a bit fat and lazy over the last decades because it could always, almost always, rely on the UK to be the faithful, reliable partner. Now it will not, will have to invest more in building coalitions depending on the subject. So on digital economy, it will have to invest more in the so-called digital nine, mostly Scandinavian, Baltic, and other countries who basically share our views. So we're going to have to invest a lot more in the member states. Recently in the news, the UK Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt announced um, a kind of shift in the way that senior diplomats are going to be appointed from the UK's point of view. But correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like he wants to bring it more in line with a model that the US has followed for a lot longer, right? It's not senior kind of career civil servants that get these posts. It's they're almost political appointees. Could you just give us a sense of kind of the strengths or weaknesses of using that model and and whether you think this is the right direction of travel? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. So, you know, it's, it's the best of times and the worst of times. You get the best and the worst, to be blunt. Uh, I've seen our system work sometimes brilliantly. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had some terrific people, you know, serve the United States abroad who had never been diplomats before, uh, who spoke foreign languages perfectly, who brought to their job a lot of relevant experience from business, from law, from, from other areas as well. 
and performed very well. I had a lot of predecessors of both parties, by the way. So this is not you – know, I'm not, not just saying this is you know, good Democrats but from both parties who brought relevant experience and did terrifically well. However, the cost of the system is also that sometimes we do send people who have not traveled to those countries, who know very little about their countries, who it seems sometimes have consulted the Wikipedia page you know, uh, before they go to those countries. That's a cost to our system, and I, uh, you know, I think that will continue to be the case. The president has the privilege of appointing who, whom, whomever he wishes to those posts. So in Europe, a lot of positions are indeed uh, reserved for political appointees. On the whole, I think the system does work. Um, and I have to say I, I found a lot of support from even career diplomats on the whole. I felt very supported in my role. I you know, spent many years in and around the EU and believed in the role and I felt supported. I think a lot of my political, politically appointed colleagues also felt supported. It all depends on how the system is used. So you know, the opposite extreme in Europe of only having a career civil service also has its costs sometimes mm -hmm. because you have sometimes, not always, diplomats in a foreign service that tends to follow in a particular line and is not willing to be risky enough or to think outside the box enough. Mm -hmm. um, that's on one extreme. And on our extreme, sometimes you have people who um, – you know, should probably follow more the diplomatic you know, <laughs> traditions. So somewhere in between, I think would be would be great. Mm -hmm. I suppose to do that, you have to have a very structured advisory career sort of pol uh, civil servants underneath you, don't you? Yes, you do, mm. and that's an important point. So even when you appoint someone who is uh, not a diplomat. Running a big embassy, you'll have a big structure supporting him or her of people who have been around for a long time. Even if they may be new to that post because they're rotated every three years, they will certainly have had a long career. And you know, it's a really important point because you know, I was running an embassy of 180 people roughly, of which about 30 were what we call local uh, national, local nationals, who some of whom had been there actually 30 years and more. And were deep subject matter experts. And in fact, often uh, when I really wanted to know something, I would go straight to those locally employed staff members because they were walking encyclopedias. That's not to be not a criticism of the, the US Civil Service Corps, but many of them, frankly, had been rotated in from uh, you know, Kabul uh, or Baghdad. Uh, as a linked assignment, as we call them, because after those really tough hardship posts, they're entitled to something that's a little nicer. And so they arrived, although very skilled, with very little knowledge about the EU. And so I would often go to the local staff to get real subject matter depth. Angela Merkel has recently announced that she is not going to be rerunning. How do you think her leaving um, will be a big loss to the EU? Do you think it will change the dynamics significantly? Or do you think it might not make a difference at all? It's hugely significant. You know, I witnessed, again, repeatedly that on the big decisions, there was one uh, major voice at the table making the final call, certainly on migration, certainly on the reaction of the financial crisis and 
on sanctions and other issues besides. It was Germany and Angela Merkel. Europe needs a strong Germany. I think everybody would agree on that. Now with the UK leaving, you know, the, the, the structure becomes somewhat more precarious because it was always going to be a tripod. The French perhaps like to think it was a, you know, a, a Franco-German motor, but it was always going to be a tripod. So one of those legs is now leaving. The French are still in a position of weakness, although Macron has been very active in proposing reforms, including for the Eurozone. Uh, but my, you know, my point is that uh, with a Germany that is now arguably uh, weakened in the sense of having a leadership that is uh, at least not as strong as it was before, because it was having popular support, uh, is not a good position for Europe to be in because it is even less perhaps capable or could be less capable of exercising leadership on the world stage. Um, and that's something that is a loss. I think Chancellor Merkel has played a very positive role. Even countries within the EU who have complained about German predominance, economic political predominance, would agree that there was no alternative to German leadership. You know, even the Poles, I think, uh, although perhaps critical of Germany today, eh, under the prior regime, would say, you know, we need German leadership. That's not something historically one would have perhaps heard uh, often. Um, criticism from Italy about Germany. But the fact of the matter is there is no alternative. No other country can play that role. So Angela Merkel being arguably somewhat weakened leads to Germany being less confident about uh, thinking big, bold thoughts right now, including taking up some of the important proposals that Macron has made. And if that's true, the window... Uh, of reform could potentially pass. Yeah, following on that thread of uh, thinking about the key European players, if you were advising the European Union at the moment on transatlantic relations, how would you position Europe's stance to the current US administration? It's a really tough question because there's a debate right now within the EU between those who say we really need to stand up for uh, our values and our beliefs and engaging a quote-unquote bully has its price. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are those who believe that um, you have to make do with the leaders who are there, particularly in the United States, which is still the world's preeminent power. It's a fine line because I have always said that the EU needs to remain united, number one. If it starts cutting side deals for its own industries or its own interests, then it's really the beginning of a divide and, and rule strategy from Washington. Remember, this administration has not only been a cheerleader about Brexit, but has actively believed that there will inevitably be more Brexits and, in fact, that that is a good thing because the EU um, is a you know, illegitimate or semi-legitimate organization, a consortium uh, that was established by Germany principally to beat the United States in trade. That's the way it's been described. So if you start from that proposition, right. um, you're going to want to try to play the bilateral transactional game with individual member states. So my my advice to the EU is you've got to use the leverage you have to avoid being divided and ruled over by this administration whose 
you know, who is pursuing, which is pursuing a short-term policy that for me doesn't have any geostrategic sense. And I say that because the United States should be using the EU as an ally on many issues where we have joint interests, particularly on trade with China, uh, but other areas as well. So use unity, use its leverage, engage, of course, with the United States. Be very careful, however, about this dynamic of engaging the United States on, on trade because appetite grows with the eating. And if you have a president who fundamentally believes his strategy of uh, putting pressure is working, you will have to continue delivering the goods. Right. And that is a dangerous dynamic. Uh, I can understand why the EU has done this recent deal with Washington, but it has its risks. Based on what we know already of the results so far from last night, do you think that will change the way in which the international community potentially engages with the US? Yes. Let's imagine for a moment that there had been a very strong result for the Republicans, not only in the Senate but in the House. I think that there would be a real impact globally, meaning that there would be a lot of leaders today who would draw the conclusion that uh, President Trump is not a flash in the pan that this is a long-term phenomenon that's occurring in the United States and globally they want to be part of it. This is the vanguard of the future, populism, um, the use of aggressive language against the press, the judiciary, against minorities, uh, language about migration, xenophobia, this new way of communicating as well. They would all have concluded as many have already concluded in Brazil and Poland and in Hungary and other places, that this is a lasting phenomenon. The results we saw yesterday indicate perhaps this is not a lasting phenomenon and hence may lead some people, some leaders, to say uh, we may see a change of administration two years from now. Perhaps we should not engage in a behavior on the assumption that he'll be around for another six years. Uh, and I don't think it's frankly too much to to argue or to, to draw the line between some of the language that's used in the United States and the behavior of some regimes abroad that has led to uh, a crackdown on dissent, on the disappearance of uh, journalists, and a general drift to authoritarianism. Uh, so I, I, I'm hopeful that these results we saw yesterday will perhaps slow down that trend. Well, that's a positive note to end on, yeah. hopefully. <laughs> Thank you so much Thanks. for coming and speaking to us today. Okay, so it's great to be joined today by Chris Van Dome. Chris is a research associate in the Africa programme at Chatham House, and his new paper, co-authored with Alex Vines, is titled Tackling Illegal Wildlife Trade in Africa, Economic Incentives and Approaches, and it's available to read now on the Chatham House website. Don't forget to say that. <laughs> read it now. Read it now. But first, listen to this interview. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. I should say I'm also joined by Agnes in Hello. a rare double interview uh, Satin. episode. Satin, yes. It's very exciting. Mm -hmm. This never happens. How lucky yeah. I am. I said, <laughs> well, we're here. Well, Chris, tell us about this report. 
So this paper was produced uh, ahead of the government's illegal wildlife trade conference that took place early in October this year. And the purpose of this paper was to, uh, along the lines of the objectives of the summit, to broaden out the conversation around illegal wildlife trade so it's not just about specific incidents of organised crime but looking at the conservation debate more broadly. So while one of the objectives of the conference was to have illegal wildlife trade recognised more broadly as a serious organised crime, what this paper looks at is the economic incentives and approaches for southern African countries to pursue conservation-based development. So that's not just about tackling illegal wildlife trade, although that is a central part of that, but it's about how is it that governments can enforce property rights over wildlife in a way that incentivizes uh, local communities or other actors within the economy to make use of those resources so that there is an incentive for the protection of that wildlife uh, as opposed to allowing for a situation where poaching can persist unencumbered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned it's a it's a serious organised crime. How big is it? How big business? What are we talking about here in terms of the scale of it? That depends on <laughs> where you get your figures from. It's in the billions of dollars. One of the difficulties around measuring the scale of illegal wildlife trade as an organised crime is how do you get a metric to measure it by? So where there are other illegal exploitation of resources that are linked to organised crime, for example, illegal logging, In that industry, there's already a legal trade, so you can measure Mm. roughly what's lost. And one of the things that we found in our research is that a lot of the measurements around the cost of the illegal wildlife trade either make assumptions around there being a legal trade, which is very politicised at the moment because some of the countries uh, that we were looking at in this paper are arguing in favour of having a legal trade. So some of the research that's out there as part of the kind of greater body of literature, are using measurements based on assumptions of there being a legal trade in, for example, rhino horn, to be able to make a political point domestically. Other estimates of the cost of the trade are done for very specific reasons. So uh, some of the estimates that are out there are looking at what is the cost uh, of elephant poaching, either because they're trying to make a advocacy point around this is how much money could be made uh, if we protect elephants. And there are other studies out there that have been done as a result of African governments themselves saying, okay, what is a single elephant worth? So if that elephant is poached, what is then the punishment? How can we uh, enforce an appropriate response to this illegal trade? So is this trade uh, predominantly perpetrated by sort of non-state actors, if you like, or uh, like organised crime, gangs, people in their local communities? Or are, are some governments complicit in this trade as well? The illegal wildlife trade is a serious organised crime. And the trade comes with or the trade perpetuates other associated ills such as corruption. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we point out in the report is instances where there have been police complicity. But the corruption thing, I think, gets a bit overstated. Uh, Yes, there is a high level of corruption around the illegal trade. But there's also much more important is building the capacity of domestic law enforcement and having special investigators who are much more aware of how it is to conduct investigations into 
uh, illegal wildlife traders and organized crime as opposed to, say, drugs and so on. And in terms of other non-state actors on the ground, there is an increasing recognition that communities are the first line of defense uh, against the illegal wildlife trade. But at the same time, there are debates as to how to bring those communities on board. And one of the things that we found in our research was that where international actors may think that they are being successful because they have a community engagement project in place, many of those working on the ground, many of the practitioners that we spoke to uh, signaled to us that actually um, communities uh, feel that their voices aren't being heard and that communities feel their voices aren't being heard, not just in terms of their engagement in extracting benefits from wildlife in a positive, sustainable way, but in around the decision-making processes of that. And there's a, still a kind of broad trend of internationally defined best practice being implemented or being imposed on local people. And one of the things that we were trying to do with this paper was trying to seek out where there are examples of local best practice and, and show that actually there is innovation on the ground that can be useful and can be learned from. When you talk about extracting benefit from wildlife in legitimate ways what do you mean by that what kind of things aside from a kind of legal wildlife trade are there other ways through conservation and stuff that that communities can benefit from this yeah and and the big money maker and the big hope i think for the conservation industry is around tourism now tourism alone will not be able to provide the level of jobs and the level of real jobs so not just kind of cash in hand things but um, legitimate sustainable work Tourism alone won't be able to provide that for all of the people living in these areas, but it is an incredibly important part of building a wildlife economy, which is why a number of the studies that are trying to estimate the cost of the economy use the opportunity costs associated with a lack of tourism because of poaching as a way of measuring that cost. The tourism industry is interesting because it does provide some skewed results when you come to trying to measure the value, say, of, of an elephant. And one of the issues that we came across in looking at the Kavango Zambezi Conservation Area, which is a transfrontier conservation area that covers northern Botswana, Namibia, southeastern Angola, Zambia, and northwest Zimbabwe, was that if you look at Botswana, Botswana has one of the best high-end safari industries in the world, if not the best. And there are five-star lodges in that part of the country that will be selling hotel rooms for fourteen or 15,000 US dollars a night. So if you're basing your ideas of what it is that a kind of the, the tourism industry can provide or what the value of an elephant is for a economy, if you're basing it on that, then clearly you're going to have a very high value calculated. Just over the border, well, if you cross the Caprivi Strip, that bit of Namibia, and you move into Angola, that southeastern part of Angola is still pretty well landmined as a result of the Civil War. So in that part of the country there, there isn't the ability for people to develop a tourism industry that can generate that economic incentive to protect the wildlife but it does mean that those who seek to uh, benefit from the very high risk but very high reward activities around poaching are able to do so with near impunity. And so one of the things that we looked at in this paper is how is it that you can get regional cooperation? And this is something that's being discussed 
uh, within the Kavango Zambezi Transfrontier Conservation Area. Also in the United States, there's an act called the Delta Act passing through Congress that's looking at exactly this, of how is it that you can balance the objectives and requirements of different countries. And this is a particularly interesting case because the Okavango River is... I think pretty much unique on the continent, if not the world, in being a complete inland river. So the tributaries of the Okavango start in the highlands of southeastern Angola, uh, but the river never reaches the ocean. It goes into the Okavango Delta and is an inland delta in northwestern Botswana. So the entire river system is completely enclosed within that space, which makes it very interesting. But also, if you look at a map of it, you can see quite clearly that on one side, you've got a very well-defined or a huge tourism industry. And on the other side, you've got an area that's covered in landmines. And so it's a clear kind of example of where implementation of kind of resource management over that is necessary in order to protect the upstream part of the river uh, in Angola from the pressures of industrialization, irrigation, agriculture, allowing access into that land by demining, uh, and then protecting that in order to protect then the southern, the end part of the river, which is the high-end tourism industry in Botswana. So when we're talking about illegal wildlife, just to bring it back a tiny bit, what wildlife are we talking about? The illegal wildlife trade is kind of the, the big ticket items, uh, if you want. Uh, elephant tusks, rhino horn, pangolin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we have to talk about pangolins. The majority of the rhino horn trade is coming out of South Africa. That's where the majority of the rhinos are. And elephant tusk is well, uh, a more widespread poaching target. But that's kind of that's the entry point into then the, the conservation debate that we put forward in the paper is that there is so much international attention on rhino horn, on elephant tusk and on pangolin, but there are so many other species listed on the red list as being endangered and there are so much there's so many more benefits of biodiversity than just those that can be extracted from having rhinos or elephant present. So yeah, that they're critical if you want to have a really high end tourism industry because tourists will be on their once in a lifetime trip and they'll want to see the big five and they'll want to tick those off. And they have less interest, say, in seeing a diker or a chimsbok or something. You know, they, they don't know these animals. They don't care. They want mm. to see the things that they've been told that they're likely to see. Uh, and yet, in order to be able to really have some of the unidentified, um, well, not unidentified, unquantified economic benefits of these ecosystems, you have to protect the full range of biodiversity. And that's something that is still very much in its infancy globally in terms of the understanding of of the value of biodiversity and ecosystems through the development of natural capital accountancy but it's even more prevalent in uh, in Africa where uh, this stuff really isn't particularly well understood or isn't quantified to a level that people can see what these economic benefits are there are cases where it is progressing for example um, Botswana is a partner in the World Bank run waves program which is about calculating the value of natural capital uh, and that's looking more at things like the, the the value of clean water fresh air and all of these other benefits that these ecosystems provide and yet we don't necessarily include in calculations when it comes to thinking through 
what are the benefits. And on the sort of demand side, obviously uh, in the West recently there have been quite a few changes in ivory legislation. It's now illegal to buy old ivories too? Yeah. Am I right? So has that in any way changed? In the UK. In the UK, right, okay. Yeah, has that had any impact at all? Uh, I'm not sure. I would assume that it's too early to tell. Mm. Uh, I think we need to go through the teething phase of that first. I mean, there's all sorts of stories now around the difficulties of uh, importing and exporting antique pianos, for example, where each individual key is classified as a single piece of ivory. So you've got, you know, you'll be exporting a piano and that's actually 52 pieces of ivory. So... Yeah, the, the, I think we'll have to go through all of the, those kind of kind of teething problems. In terms of conservation efforts on the ground, uh, I think one of the more important concepts out of this work is is seeing that this serious organised crime is a result of a lack of enforcement of property rights. And uh, kind of anyone who you know, A level economics tragedy of the commons scenario and I think that is the most private school thing you've ever said Chris <laughs> <laughs> for those of us who haven't done A-level yeah. Yeah. what do you mean you by that roll back? <laughs> just it, ten words explain tragedy of the commons go on have 20 yeah have, have 20. 20 I think this is a direct result of Agnes making threats to me in the pub on Friday night <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, I mean, those have been consistent threats all throughout the day. <laughs> so the illegal wildlife trade, um, or rather the exploitation of wildlife uh, in Africa, is often seen as a tragedy of the commons where wildlife is seen as a common resource, yeah. as in one in which no one has, well, in a theoretical case, no one has property rights over. In this case... It's often seen as where those property rights lie, they're either not enforced or exercised or they're ambiguous. And so a community living uh, in or near a national park will hunt in the park for bushmeat based on kind of traditional uh, access rights, irrespective of whether or not a nuisance that they have property rights over them and utilisation rights over them. By enforcing those utilisation rights wherever they're defined, you can then uh, set up a formalised process of who is able to extract the benefits of that wildlife. So one of the places where this has been most effective has been in Namibia, and particularly in northern Namibia. So Namibia got its independence in 1990, and shortly after that, towards the late 90s, it created a system of community-based natural resource management, which was based along the same lines as something that was already started and up and coming in Zimbabwe, which is the campfire program. In Namibia, what they did was they allowed local communities to have to be able to retain a hundred percent of the benefits of utilization of wildlife. So, as a result of that, they were able to build up a conservation industry. It was A lot of the revenue came from hunting. Um, Some of the revenue came from tourism. But this was able to take place in areas where actually that was a far more competitive land use option over agriculture. Mm. And so wildlife numbers in that part of the country, we're talking kind of the northern parts of the country, wildlife numbers have increased dramatically over the course of the last 
kind of 20 odd years so that's been seen as a real success story yeah there are still some uh, issues to be ironed out for example there's still cases of human wildlife conflict where you've got a community will have some benefit from a hunting industry but at the same time maybe their predominant income is from agriculture and from cattle so there's still human wildlife conflict there but it is seen as a positive case of where the devolution of utilization rights to a local community uh, has had success in incentivizing those people to protect and use the wildlife. Obviously, that's yeah, it's a great example of a of a local solution. I was just wondering what you think the role, if any, of the international community should be. Because I mean, yeah, obviously, it's very important that the British government brought together everyone for this conference, but we wouldn't want to be sort of sat here in London saying, this is how you solve the illegal wildlife trade. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone do what we do what we think. What? Where do you think that kind of lies? I mean, obviously you mentioned the World Bank as well previous in a previous answer. Where does that fit? Where do we involve ourselves without becoming a kind of sort of neo-colonial project? I think there's three things, really. One, facilitation. Mm-hmm. Acting as a facilitator of debate where there is still contested issues. For example, the Angola-Botswana case around the Okavango River. That's not the only uh, example where there are regional um, disputes over best practice. So the international community has an important role in, in facilitating those conversations. Funding. There's still an important role of funding from uh, international donors. One of the things that we see in the the research that we did was that it's kind of well recognized that you can there are inter, there are economic incentives uh, for local people to be custodians of of wildlife and the economic benefits in country can be considerable but there's still a kind of skewed benefits balance where the international benefits of biodiversity are still greater than those uh, accumulated on the ground and kind of those right at the at the front of these debates kind of living amongst the wildlife and in, in communities near these areas still kind of face the the highest costs so there's still a role for the international community in kind of the transfer of benefits from an international to a local level through through funding and support and that's the third point which is how is it that the international community can support local initiatives uh, and that is through you know, the provision of support of uh, intelligence sharing and training and uh, providing support that is defined at a local level. So allowing for local initiatives to be heard and for the solutions for some of these issues to be defined at a local level and then supported by uh, international commitments rather than having... You know, Western governments come up with ideas that they then, or Western conservation uh, NGOs coming up with ideas that they then take onto the ground and they aren't necessarily practical. But what's, I think, really important to stress is that there are similarities between many of the the parks and private reserves and uh, protected areas and conservation areas that we looked at in the paper but there's also considerable differences. And even just across borders, there can be considerable differences. Um, for example, uh, in the Great Limpopo Transfrontier Conservation Area that is 
Well, it started. It's now involved in. Well, it 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 is that area between South Africa, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe, and it was one of the first transfrontier conservation areas to be set up, and it was always seen as a kind of a a, a beacon of peace. But on the one side, in the South African side, because of the South African history, they didn't have people living inside the park. That was part of what made a park a park, is that it, there weren't communities directly inside the park. On the Mozambican side, they did have communities living inside the park. And so you know, there are still regional differences in approach that raise big questions. <laughs> the reason why we focused on Southern Africa was because... It is an area where there are local initiatives that are gaining traction and having success. And we we were inundated during the research process of this of uh, being sent in examples uh, from across the continent, uh, in particular some of the work that's being done in East Africa. There are some really good examples there of local initiatives that are having conservation successes. But looking at Southern Africa in particular allowed us to use these uh, transfrontier conservation areas as a way of looking at how is it that different people are approaching these within a shared space, um, which was really interesting. And, and, and as I say, can, there are some big challenges in the way in which different countries uh, approach these uh, areas, but there are also similar responses in terms of how is it that you devolve local ownership? How is it that you create uh, an ecotourism industry? And how is it that you translate those economic benefits back into conservation because for a lot of places that we looked at yes there is poaching yes there are ambitions of development of ecotourism industries and to have wildlife economies that make the most of their wildlife resources but there's also still challenges remaining of how is it that you incentivize the transfer from a benefit an economic benefit in terms of tourism uh, directly back into the promotion of conservation because the two aren't necessarily linked, especially if your tourism industry is based on people coming and seeing the big five, but there's multiple species that need conserving. Well, that seems like a relatively positive note on which to end, um, <laughs> which is rare for undercurrents. <laughs> like you said. Okay, well, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely. And you can read Chris's paper tackling illegal wildlife trade in africa on the chathamaz website now so check it out so that's it for this episode thanks so much for listening if you've enjoyed what you've listened to please subscribe and rate us and tell a friend maybe and follow us on twitter at chatham house we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews but in the meantime i'm ben horton i'm agnes frimston and you've been listening to undercurrents